This morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through chapter 12, verse 12. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there. Mark eleven twenty-seven through 12, 12. And the title of this message is Rejecting the Beloved Son's Authority. So just to remind us uh, where we are for a second, the entire book of Mark, over and over and over again, has been answering the question, who is Jesus? Uh, Most of the book thus far has been focused on Jesus' life and ministry, moving us quickly toward the cross. But then... Mark moves from double speed. I don't know how many of you listen to podcasts on double speed, but Mark kind of moves from double speed to almost slow motion for the last week of Jesus's life, starting in chapter 11. So we saw Jesus ride into Jerusalem on an unridden colt, highlighting both his kingly divinity and his humble humanity. We saw him curse a fig tree as a prophet and roll into the temple, cleansing it as a priest. So, who is this man? He's prophet, priest, and king. But not everyone believed that. Today, we'll see Jesus back in the temple, and his authority questioned. And here's what I want us to see in this text this morning. Here's the main point before we ever get started. Uh, The main point of this text is that Jesus has legitimate authority. What we do with that authority has eternal consequences. I'll say that again. The main point is that Jesus has legitimate authority. And what we do with that authority has eternal consequences. So let's dive into the text. Mark 11, starting in verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. And he had still one other, a beloved son. 
Finally, he sent to them, him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. I realize that at the end of chapter 11 that we just read, and the front of chapter 12, may seem like two distinct texts, and in some ways they are. But what I want us to see is that these two actually go together. Uh, they both deal with Jesus' authority, and specifically those who question or reject it. So with that in mind, our two points today are these. Point one, questioning Jesus' authority in, in chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. And then point two, rejecting Jesus' authority in chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. So point one, questioning Jesus' authority. Remember that Jesus has just gone into the temple, flipped over the money-changing tables, driven people out forcefully, and blocked people from using the temple as a cut-through. Then he walked out. Now, a day later, he's back in the temple, and who do we have? Verses 27 through 28. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, referring to Jesus, the chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, what authority are you doing these things? Or, who gave you the authority to do them? Chief priests, scribes, and elders. These were the members of the Sanhedrin. They were the supreme council in charge of Jewish affairs. So, under Roman rule, they were at the top of the pecking order when it came to Jewish politics and power. Jesus has just made a scene on their turf. <laughs> I recently heard a story about a guy who was preaching in New York City. <laughs> and in the middle of his sermon, this guy stood up on the second row and shouted with all of his might that the city is under imminent threat. After pausing, and the deacons kind of ushering this man out of the room, this guest preacher continued on preaching. Other than kind of the commotion caused, no one really paid much attention to the man. Uh, no one took his message seriously. Why? Because he had no authority. It may have been different if, say, the senior pastor of the church had stood up and said the same thing. Or maybe if an officer had walked in and shouted that. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority, Jesus? Show us your rabbi card. Is it signed by the right people? 
What do you think you're doing? This isn't the first time that these people had struggled with this issue in the book of Mark. This is actually a recurring theme in the book of Mark. Jesus' authority. Mark chapter 1, verse 22, speaking of the same people, says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. A couple verses later in verse 27, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, says, And when Jesus saw their faith, speaking of these friends, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise up, take your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus' authority has been a sticking point for these guys all along. Does Jesus have authority or not? Where does he get his authority to cast out demons, heal people, cleanse the temple, and forgive sins? That's the question that they're asking. But to be clear, they're not asking honestly here. This is a trap. They want Jesus to either discredit himself by saying, yeah, I'm actually not from God, or to clearly say he is from God, which would then be used to kill him. Even though we're getting close, it still wasn't time for that yet. So what does Jesus do? What authority are you doing these things? How will he answer their question? With a question. Look at verses 29 and 30. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven? Or man? Answer me. This is brilliant. If you remember, when we went through Mark 10 and the story of the rich young ruler, I recommended this book by Randy Newman called Questioning Evangelism. I can't recommend it enough. If you're not a reader and you don't want to go read the book, be a listener. Go Google Questioning Evangelism, the Gospel Coalition. You just type it into Google. Questioning Evangelism, the Gospel Coalition. It's about a 40-minute lecture that this guy gives on how Jesus, more often than not, uses questions to answer questions. Uh, It's really, really good, really, really helpful. And that's what Jesus does here yet again. They set a trap for Jesus, and by asking a question in return, he essentially says, okay, 
I need you guys just to move right over here, just a little bit, right above this trap door. All right. Now you guys answer this. What are your thoughts on John the Baptist? Was he from God or man? And with that question, they were done. Why? Because if they said from heaven or from God, they had to go with what John said, right? And what did John say about Jesus? John chapter 1, 29 through 34 says this, speaking of John the Baptist, it says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, so here's what he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So, If they said that that John, in fact, was from heaven or was from God, they would have to concede all of that. But if they said from man, they would lose all credibility with the crowds that were in front of them. Because all of the crowds, all of the people actually loved John and rightly saw him as a prophet. You see what Jesus did there? They ask a question that's not really a question. It's a trap. He asked them a question in return, essentially via John the Baptist, getting at the issue of authority. His question is essentially this. Do you recognize and submit to my authority? That's the issue here. And look at what the text says. It says, They were afraid of the people. They were afraid of the people. They're not really rejecting Jesus based on any evidence or lack thereof for his claims. They're making their decisions based on fear of man and what's popular around them at the time. They don't have the courage to give an honest answer. So look at their response. Verse 33, so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So essentially, like like skilled politicians, they get asked a question, they step up to the mic, and they say, no comment. So Jesus says, No comment to you, too. This is a teaching moment for us. Christian, do you know that you don't have to give an answer to every question that's asked of you? Yes, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to 
always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet to do it with gentleness and respect. I know that. But not every question that's asked is asking for a reason for the hope that's in you. Some questions are not real questions, and you don't have to answer them. Proverbs 26.4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. So Jesus begins by asking them a question in response to their question. This is incredibly wise. It forces them to think instead of just giving them some canned answer that's a trap anyway. Then, notice, he just straight up doesn't answer their question at all. I heard one pastor say that that sometimes our evangelistic efforts are, are kind of like putting a pebble in someone's shoe. Specifically, the questions that we ask in evangelism. Putting a pebble in someone's shoe. A pebble is a small thing. But have you ever tried walking around with a pebble in your shoe? It's kind of awful. It'll bother you all day long until you take care of it. Sometimes, asking a question in response to a question is kind of like that. Maybe you're sitting on an airplane or a park or wherever you are. Someone asks you a question about Christianity. I don't know about you, but... For me, it's just so tempting in that moment to tell them everything I know about Christianity. Right then. Sometimes that's overwhelming. Probably aren't listening anyway. But what if you put a pebble in their shoe with a question? That's what Jesus did here by asking a question and then not answering theirs. Now, let's ask some questions. First, we learned that the issue here is questioning Jesus' authority. Let me ask you this morning. What or who is your source of authority? What or who is your source of authority? Is it yourself? Or is it Jesus and his word? Does He get to do what he wants to do in your life. Even when that authority upsets you. Are your feelings the one true authority that trump everything in your life? Or does Jesus have supreme authority? You see, as always, it's so easy in the Gospels to to pick on the scribes and the elders in the book of Mark. I'm afraid we're a lot like them. How do we question Jesus' authority? This is the age-old issue that Satan brought to the garden in Genesis 3. God gave Adam and Eve only one rule, right? One command. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan slithers in, and look what his first words were. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? See, when we question God's word, 
question his authority. So does he have ultimate authority in your life? When the culture says something different than God's word, are you, like the scribes and Pharisees here, are you afraid of the people? Or do you unflinchingly hold fast to the authority of Christ? Maybe you're here and you've never believed in Jesus or submitted to his authority. I want to challenge you today to consider it. I want to put a pebble in your shoe this morning. What, if anything, is holding you back from submitting your life to Jesus? Are there truth claims that he made that you don't find true or don't find compelling? Let's discuss that. I would love nothing more. I plead with you, don't make your decision based on fear of man. Consider the claims of Jesus. If what he says about himself is true, and it is, eternity is at stake. One more question before moving on to point two. Why does Jesus' authority matter? Why is this a big deal? In addition to eternity hanging in the balance, why is Jesus' authority such a big deal? Consider Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. This is just before the Great Commission. It says this, And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Understand this. If you're going through a trial in your life right now, or, or ever, do you see how important it is for Jesus to have authority? And then to hear him say a couple verses later that I will be with you to the end of the age. If he doesn't have authority, it may be heartwarming to have him say he's with you, but it's not much more than that. But if he does have authority, you can have hope in the midst of your darkest days. You can trust him amidst trial. You can cling to him knowing that he's got this, whatever it is. You can believe God's word even when life doesn't make sense. It seems like the world's crumbling around you. Do you see that? Second, if Jesus doesn't have authority, we get no grace and we get no mercy. If he was merely a man, he has no authority to forgive sin or to give us what we don't deserve. No authority no grace and no mercy. Friends, Jesus has legitimate authority and it matters. So, instead of answering their question, he decides to tell them a parable. Point two, rejecting Jesus' authority. Look with me, starting in chapter 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. He says this, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. 
When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. So who's the, who's the them of verse 1? It appears to be the same guys who were just questioning his authority in the previous verses. And Jesus tells them a parable. Now this is only one of two places Jesus tells a parable in the book of Mark. Oftentimes, Jesus used parables to kind of disguise the meaning and to intentionally deliver it to those who had ears to hear. But not this time. (laughs) We'll see soon that these guys understood the meaning of the parable clearly and that it was directed at them specifically. Have you ever had that feeling before? A speaker or a coach or a preacher is talking and you're sitting there thinking, he's talking about me. That's the case here. Jesus is rebuking them. And I want to make just a slight disclaimer here. This section of text may not be rebuking you. It may not. But it may be. So don't tune out here. Right now, ask God to give the eyes of your heart the ability to see what he wants you to see. Even if that means that Jesus is rebuking you. These guys knew that it was about them. So understand this. Jesus is telling a parable here, but... He's kind of riffing on a text of scripture that they knew very well. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. It says, Let me sing, a, sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. Israel, God's people, are the vineyard, if you didn't catch that. Do you see all of these ands? Look at what all God has done for his vineyard. He planted it on a fertile hill. And cleared it of stones. And planted it with choice vines and built a watchtower to keep it safe, hewed out a wine vat. He's been so generous to them. Let's keep reading. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, worthless grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do to my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. 
and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So, when Jesus starts a parable with the phrase, a man planted a vineyard, they could immediately see where this was going. They also understood how this worked practically. If an owner leased his land to a tenant, the tenant would then work the land and then be expected to give a part of the produce back to the owner as payment. They understood this. When the owner has done all that we read about in Isaiah 5, there's some expectation. So if you're following, Israel is the vineyard. The tenants, the ones who are supposed to take care of the land and make it flourish, would be who? Jewish leaders. The ones he's telling the parable to, right? Then, Jesus outlines Israel's history for them. A servant is sent. They beat him. Another servant. Knock him upside the head. Treat him shamefully. He sent another, and him they killed. So with many others, some they beat, some they killed. This is Israel's history. The servants are the prophets. Hebrews 1.1 reminds us that Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. How did that work out? Hebrews 11, verses 35 through 38 tells us, Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So just a a quick sampling here. Jeremiah, the prophet, was beaten and put in stocks. Isaiah was sawn in two. Zechariah was stoned to death in the temple itself. John the Baptist? beheaded. Servants were sent, some were beaten and mistreated, some were killed. Think about that. Do you see how patient God is in all of this? Let me just ask you this. If you were the owner of the field, how many of you would have just gone nuclear after you sent the first messenger? He was beaten. No, I would. It's so good that I'm not God. And that you're not God. He's patient. Long-suffering. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Man, that's good news. I'm so grateful that he's been patient with me. Amen? Now, before moving on in the parable, 
want us to just consider a couple of things. Do you see how the, these tenants treated the owner's property as if it was theirs? Friends, every single one of us are tenants. This isn't the main point of the parable by any means, but this truth is embedded here. Every single one of us are tenants with God as the owner. All of our stuff, all of our time, all of our resources, all of our kids, they belong to God. He has the rights to all of it. We are tenants. Like we read in Isaiah in the vineyard, he's given us so much. So are we living like tenants? Or as if God's things are ours to do whatever we want with? Second, how do you respond to the messengers that God sends you? Again, you and me, like the tenants in this parable, may not like that the messengers are there. But how do you respond to the servants that God sends? As we'll find out soon, God takes notice of this, how we respond. Again, God's authority is the issue here. So God sends servants. Then, Definitely the most shocking verse in the entire parable. Maybe one of the more shocking verses in the Bible. Look at verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. A beloved son. This language is rich with biblical significance. We saw it at Jesus' baptism. Mark 1, verse 11. A voice came from heaven, speaking to Jesus. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Again at the transfiguration, Mark 9, verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And for the crowd that Jesus is speaking to, they would have immediately thought about Abraham and Isaac. In Genesis 22, verse 2, it says, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. He's sending his beloved son. This is insanity. This landowner has patiently and mercifully sent servant after servant after servant who've been abused and killed. Now this? This is grace. They're getting what they don't deserve at all. Look at verses 7 and 8. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. The owner has been merciful and gracious and patient. And they killed his beloved son. 
Verse 9. Another question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Let that sit for a moment. I know that Jesus is teaching this parable to Jewish religious leaders, but I believe it's here for us too. Many say things like, you know, I just, I don't like the God of the Old Testament with all of his judgment and wrath. I just like Jesus. Well, if your Bible has red letters in it, signifying the words of Jesus, what color is verse 9 in your Bible? Red. These are the words of Jesus. He's just told us that God is patient and merciful and gracious. But he's also a God of judgment and wrath. Hear this. Jesus, the beloved son, has legitimate authority over all things. What you do with that authority matters for eternity. If you choose to reject Jesus' authority, verse 9, you will be destroyed by the owner of the vineyard. There will be a just judgment and a wrath for eternity. I know that this isn't a popular topic. I know that it isn't a fun topic to consider. But it's true. If I didn't share this truth with you honestly and clearly, I'd be the worst pastor and friend ever. If you reject Jesus, you will spend eternity in hell. You will receive every bit of wrath and judgment that you deserve for rebelling against an eternal and holy God. Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17 says this. It says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Charles Spurgeon said it so clearly when he says this. He says, Remember once more that if you do not hear the well-beloved Son of God, you have refused your last hope. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. Our last hope, God's ultimatum. Here's the good news. Look at verses 10 through 11. Jesus is quoting Psalm 118 that we read earlier. Same psalm that they shouted as he came in on the colt a couple days earlier. Verses 10 and 11. So after that parable of telling us of God's patience and grace and mercy and judgment, 
He says this. He says, have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Do you see what he's saying? Even though the son was sent and killed, he hasn't lost. He was the stone that was rejected, but he's become the cornerstone. The stone that was tossed aside and seen as worthless became the most important stone in the entire building. That was God's plan, and it's marvelous. It's so easy to read this parable and see the tenants as someone else, right? See them as the Jewish leaders, someone else. But in many ways, all of us are like the tenants in this parable. We're all responsible for killing the son because of our sin. But do you see the great reversal here in Jesus' words? What Jesus described in the parable would happen three days later. The Jewish leaders would kill the beloved son. But he'd become the cornerstone through his death, burial, and resurrection. He'd become our only means of salvation. The beloved son. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's the truth. And as we see in the parable, there's a couple different ways to respond to that truth. You can respond by repenting and believing in that cornerstone, Jesus, accepting his patience and mercy and grace. Or you can respond like these guys, Harden your heart even further. Look at verse 12. It says, And they were seeking to arrest him. He tells them this parable. They know he's talking about them. Their hearts are hardened. They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. They're still afraid of the people. They hated Jesus' message. Before the Son of God, there's only two possibilities. And I think Psalm chapter 2, which is about Jesus, by the way, I think Psalm chapter 2 sums it up well. So I want to finish by just reading this psalm. It says, Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's Jesus. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Rejecting his authority. Cast away their cords from us. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do you see it? Before the Son, you can, like these kings, try to break free from his authority. You can try to set up your own authority above the Lord and his anointed. God will laugh. You'll be dashed in pieces like a potter's vessel in his just wrath. Or you can take refuge in Jesus. You can kiss the sun, as it says, a symbol of submission to his patient, merciful, gracious kingship. The beloved son came to this earth. He lived a perfect life was killed on the cross in our place. He was buried and rose again from the grave three days later. He became the cornerstone. When we repent and believe in him, we'll be saved, the scriptures tell us. Jesus has legitimate authority. How will you respond? Let's pray.